Hi, everybody. My name is Beverly, and I am a very grateful member of Al-Anon. I'm glad to be here. Um, this has been a real privilege for me to be invited to be uh, one of the participating speakers for this roundup, and especially um, to be the kickoff speaker. Um, we, you know, every little thing is like an honor, and it's just wonderful to be here. I'm able to travel this weekend with my husband. Um, he's sitting here in, on the front row, and as of two weeks ago, because of good sponsorship, a uh, hundred million meetings, and uh, the love that we have for each other, we've been married 39 years. <laughs> I live in a town called Louisville, Texas, which is about 22 miles north of Dallas, and uh, I, for 18 years, belonged to the same Al-Anon group in, in Dallas, which was called the Horizon Al-Anon Family Group. But the, the state of Texas decided that they needed just one more interstate, and so they started to make an SH-190, making it almost impossible to get to the meeting on time, and I had to start leaving earlier and earlier. And over the years, there's been a group right out my back door, but I've been, you know, when I came in here, they said to me, stick with the winners. And so I drove 22 miles into Dallas for 18 years, and I stuck with the winners. But there was this wonderful little group right there, and I thought to myself, with as much time as it's taking me to get to Dallas for one meeting, I could go to four meetings at the friendship group. And so at um, 18 years in the program, I, t I changed my home group. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, I was, you know, I mean, everybody knew me at my home group. I had my place. I had my uh, little jobs. I had... Um, respect and I sponsored a lot of girls there and when I went over to the friendship group I was a newcomer and nobody knew me and nobody knew uh, you know very few people knew I existed they didn't know that I had time in the program and I had to start all over again and I'll tell you what it is humbling and it is incredibly good for for the ego to have to start over and know what it feels like to be a newcomer and as a result of that I became much more aware of hugging and welcoming newcomers because I tended to be in my own little clique of friends, you know, and, and forget. I forget. I don't forget the, the, about alcoholism, but what I forget about is to reach out to the newcomer. When, I'm, when I get there, I, you know, I'm saying hi to everybody, and it was wonderful. So I had to remember to, um, because of my own experience, once more to reach out to newcomers. The reason that I keep coming back to Al-Anon, and I recently was able to put words to this, is because I forget what I know. Um, over and over and over again, I forget what I know, and I and I get involved in a situation of life, and and I think, how did a sweet little girl with 19 years in Al-Anon get in a place like this? And what I realize is that I forgot one of my tools, and I forgot a principle, or I forgot one of the uh, one of the steps, or how to go about doing this. And so I start all over again. So I keep coming back because I forget what I know. I also keep coming back because the old-timers, the long-timers kept coming back for me. And I don't want to call myself knowledgeable because I'm not. I mean, I wake up every day like a goose in the new world. <laughs> um, I have two sons. I have three granddaughters. I have a golden retriever dog. And my husband and I work together, and that's pretty much where we are today. We have a nice life. But uh, when we came into this program uh, 19 years ago, it was not like that. I was born and raised in Chicago a long time ago, <laughs> and uh, to a family that I would like to call alcoholic. I believe today that my father was the alcoholic in my family, and my mother was the person like myself who reacted violently to the alcoholism. Um, she was loud, and she um, was demanding, and um, I never could understand why she wanted to um, interfere with my father's fun from a, from a child's eye point of view. I just thought my dad was a million laughs. 
But my mom didn't think that my dad was a million laughs. He irritated the, the heck out of her, and, and she was always trying to control what he was doing. And, of course, I didn't see any of that then. Um, my childhood was, um, I guess, just like any other alcoholic childhood. We had good days and bad days, and we had scary days, and, and um, you know, we had days that didn't make sense, and, and there were quiet days, long periods of silence. There were long periods of rage and throwing things and slamming doors. And what I know today is that's a typical alcoholic family. Um, my, I know that today my first resentment came when I was seven years old. If I had one before that, I wasn't aware of it. Uh, but my first resentment came when I was seven years old when my mom announced that we were going to put this little bag of sugar out on the windowsill and the stork was going to carry it away. And in a short period of time, we were going to have a little baby. Well, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't think we needed a little baby. Um, I was having an, a really hard time getting attention in that home, and I, and I could see the handwriting on the wall. The only thing that a baby could possibly do was interfere, you know, with, with whatever attention that I was getting. So I didn't want this baby. So when they brought the baby home and they put her in the bassinet in the middle of the living room, I had this instant resentment. And until I got into the, into the program of Al-Anon and I wrote my first, not my first inventory, it was actually several inventories later that I finally decided that my relationship with my sister needed some adjustment and somebody told me it probably had to start with me. So I wrote an inventory about my relationship with my sister. And uh, from that point on, I have made the effort to put our relationship back in order. But that wasn't the case back then. I did everything that I could for the next 18 years that, that I lived in that house to torment her, abuse her, make her cry, make her scream, uh, create pain of any kind in her life. And, um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Three years after she was born, my brother was born, and I didn't have a problem with that. So I don't know what the threat was with my sister, probably because she was five foot two, eyes of blue. And from the time that I was born, they looked at me and said, she is so big. She is she's big bones, big big always. So I felt, you know, uh, and my mother uh, my mother used a bohemian word for me. She called me kopach, what I understand today means clumsy. And here was this tiny little baby that was getting all this attention. And so the only way I could react to that was um, to create pain for her, and I did. Um, I remember, another thing I remember from that home was unconditional love. And that did not come from my mother and father. It came from my grandmother, who became homeless after my grandfather died because um, he was an alcoholic. I have a little leather purse in my possession today with his obituary in it, and it has the day he was born, the day he died, and just his name. And I believe today that that is really the statement of alcoholism. That's all that there is to say in obituary of a man who dies of the disease of alcoholism. It's just the day he was born, the day he died, and his name. And in that little purse was a couple of coins, and they're all green today with tarnish. But I keep those to remind me of where I came from that this is a serious disease and it has affected my family since the day I was born. Unfortunately, I did not know anything about alcoholism until I walked into the doors of Al-Anon when I was a little over 40 years old. And uh, it was then, when I walked in the doors, that you started to tell me about the disease of alcoholism and you started to explain to me how deeply affected I had, uh, I had become from living in the disease. But I thought, you know, as the disease of alcoholism progressed in my home, the more perfect I became. You know, I, I, there was such a drive in me to do everything right, to please my mother so she wouldn't holler at me or, or knock me out of the, uh, out of my chair and, and to, and somewhere I must have thought that perhaps if I did it right, you know, maybe they wouldn't fight. And you know, I, I don't know where those thoughts come from. Um, I had some idea inside of me that if I was good, I could make people happy. 
Now, I don't know where that thought comes from. You know, where in the world, when you're raised in an alcoholic home, would you ever have the evidence of happiness? But I had this idea, you know, if I did something and I did it right and I and I could please these people, that I could be happy and they could be happy. And so that was a foolish, that was foolish on my behalf. Life went on, so I, I have experienced this huge re, uh, resentment. My mother takes a lot of her anger out on me, so I'm getting hit without understanding many times why I was getting hit. Um, there was a lot of noise in the house, a lot of confusion. Um, and my grandmother was the person with the unconditional love. We were also raised... Uh, at the time of the Depression, my parents stood in bread lines and went through all that pain and agony that was happening in, in a center city at that time. And so um, money was a god. And it was a big god. And you weren't to ask for money. You know, under no circumstances were you ever, ever to ask for money. And I can remember one day the kids were going out to the corner to, to the little candy store. We had candy stores on the corner that sold cigarettes and candy and, and um, paper, newspapers. And, and they had the little glass counter where you could really pick out penny candy. And I can remember I didn't have any money. And I went to my grandmother and secretly I whispered to her. I said to her, could I please have a nickel? And my mother overheard the conversation. And I was punished brutally for asking my grandmother for a nickel. So money became very important in my life. So I had all these things going from, for me. And, you know, and I didn't even know that I was suffering from the disease, that alcoholism was really the major factor. My father's brother was an alcoholic who was... Um, in and out of the family because of his alcoholism, eventually lived on the streets on 26th Street. When he was sober, he was a good butcher. And when he was not, he was laying in a gutter or in between a doorway. And occasionally the people on 26th Street would call my father and say, your brother is bad drunk and you might, you might think about coming to get him. And I can remember that my mom and dad brought my uncle home and he was so dirty. You know, he was the epitome of the thought of alcoholism. He was in the trench coat and the long fingernails that were stained with nicotine and a long beard and he smelled bad and his teeth were bad. And, and I can remember my mom and my dad would literally Clorox him before they took him to the VA hospital because they wanted to clean him up some before they admitted him into the hospital for treatment for alcoholism. And after a period of time, he would get out of the hospital. He would get a job back at a butcher shop on 26th Street and it wouldn't be too long until the scenario started again. And somewhere about the time I was in my mid-teenage years, my uncle showed up at our home in the suburbs. He had gotten on a train, got himself to the suburbs, found our house, and showed up standing at our front door. And my mother was just appalled at that. I can remember her saying that she was so embarrassed, you know, to my father, that he was. she was so embarrassed to have that drunk standing at her front door. And I remember they let him in, and they cleaned him up, and she told him he had to behave. And he did for about 20 minutes, and then he did something that was so disgusting. My mother said to my father, get him out of here, and I don't ever want to see him again. When he died, it was several months or weeks, I don't know how long, before the, the city of Chicago and the uh, um, my, my uncle was in the Navy, so I don't know who gets a body after it's been, you know, after it, when it needs to be disposed of. But it took them a long time to find my father and, and his sister to let them know that their brother had died. And those were symptoms and signs of alcoholism in my home. Um, all of my, my father's cousins and, you know, all of this stuff, it was such alcoholic behavior. All of holidays were surrounded around alcoholism. So I wanted to tell you that because um, it, didn't, it just didn't happen when I found this handsome man sitting on the front row. Uh, I was already, you know, primed and, and ready to meet, you know, somebody who fit the bill. And sure enough, I met him at work. Um, when I was 18 years old, we had moved out of the suburbs and finally went. Uh, we moved to, to Ogden, Utah. And I was 18 years old, and I was really lonely. It was a bad year. The year of that move, it was supposed to be 
the, you know, starting over. It, I don't know that it was a geographic. My father lost his job, and, and he found another job as an engineer with a corporation in Ogden. And so it wasn't really a geographic, but the idea was that when we got there, it was going to be better. It was going to be different. We were going to have more money. We were going to have a better home. So we head off there on a train, and we got off the train. And what I know today is that we took the disease of alcoholism with us. And we packed it up with the bird and the dogs and the sister and the brother and, you know, and, the, and all the other personal belongings. And when we got to, to Ogden, my mom and dad had been apart for a couple of months till they tied up all the loose ends. And when I look back over my life today, I know that, that alcoholism is a progressive disease because my father's alcoholism had progressed. And when we got off that train, the fighting progressed and all the reactions to alcoholism progressed. And it was worse than it had ever been. Nobody prepared me for the emotional disaster of leaving, you know, what was my security, my friends. You know, I had a, a group of friends that I, that I hung out with and went to their homes, and, and I got to be a kid. I, I couldn't be a kid in my home. Kids in my home were supposed to be seen and not heard. And I got to be a kid at other places because they didn't have the rules and the restrictions that you have in an alcoholic home. And I didn't have the embarrassment. You know, I was always so embarrassed to bring people home. And I didn't have any of that, and I could go over to somebody else's house, and we could just be kids. And I missed all that. When I got to Utah, I realized I was very lonely. And nobody prepared me for that. I was not emotionally prepared for the change. I was a senior in high school the year that we moved, and it was just devastating to me. I got through that the best that I could, and my father got me a job at the corporation where he worked. And a short time after I was working there, this man came in our department to fix our calculators. And he was foxy. He had a crew cut, and he had a ducktail, and he had a cigarette hanging out of the corner of his mouth, and, and he had on a sport coat and a, and a tie, and he was absolutely the best-looking guy I'd ever seen. And, and he was an older man and mature and, and uh, seemed to have... Uh, see, I saw a big S, and it wasn't for Superman, although I thought that too. It was for security, and I saw security. He was a man with a car and a job, and he'd been through the service, but there was one little problem there, and he was married. <laughs> And I and and he would come in and out of our department, and he was son, only married six months, but he wasn't happily married. And I was beginning to have thoughts like, if he was mine, I could make him happy. And there again was that thing, you know, how in the world does a person like me know how to make anybody happy? I had no idea what happiness was. So he came in and out, and there were rumors of him uh, separated and sleeping on a cot in his office, and then he, they were back together. And then I lost my job. And what I know today is that being married to him is God's divine will because I ended up with a little job across the street at a tooling company and the calculator repairman rented the back office. And for the next several months, I got to watch the calculator repairman um, come in and out and, and I'd watch him and I'd watch him. And sure enough, they weren't kidding. The cot was there and the clothes were there and um, he drove a great big white and purple Oldsmobile convertible, or I guess that one was blue. His Cadillac was purple. <laughs> a little grandiosity back then. <laughs> Anyhow, um, this big Oldsmobile convertible, Utah in the summertime, he comes in and he's brushing that hair back so the crew cut it stand up and the ducktail would go back. As he walked in the door, he'd light a cigarette and blow up a little puff of smoke. And when he'd come in the door, he'd take off the jacket and he'd throw it over a chair and slide the toolkit down the floor. And he'd open up his tie and unbutton that first button. And I, I'd look at him and I'd think, oh my God, he's the best looking man I've ever seen. He had this wonderful hairy chest. And, and he'd go in the back room and they had a little refrigerator in the, in the warehouse and get a beer out of there. 
and he'd come and stand in the doorway and he'd pop the top off that can of beer. And every time that man took a drink until the day he walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt better. And the reason I felt better is because I knew we were fixing to start to have fun. <laughs> it might not be real constructive fun, but things were going to start to happen. And, um, you know, getting over being a crisis junkie is one of the hardest things that we get to do in Al-Anon. I mean, we are so addicted to the uproar and the, and the problems and, and not knowing where the money is and not knowing where the people are and not knowing where the belongings are and, and all these things. And I mean, I didn't realize it was causing an adrenaline rush and I was just happy as a clam. The more problems we had, the happier I was, you know, and I didn't know that. But, um, I ended up not staying at that job very long. I went back to work at the corporation, and he came in the office one day to fix some of our equipment, and he announced to me that he was officially separated and when I like to go out on a date. And I took him home to meet my father, and the minute we walked in the door, my father absolutely adored him. And they went to the kitchen, and they had a little shooter, and they fixed the girls a drink. And from that day until George got sober, my dad and he were really good friends. But as soon as George got sober, something happened to that relationship because the alcohol was the bond between them. And it was sad for me to watch that happen. But and it, we dated for a year and a week, and if I would have known anything about alcoholism, I would have known we were in for a long, long 21 years. <laughs> But I didn't know anything about alcoholism. It was normal behavior to me. If I, you know, I dated a couple of normal guys. A guy took me over to his house one day and he brought a chessboard out and he played, he played classical music. He brought his little Victrola outside on 78 RPM records. I mean, that's how far back I go. And, uh, he fixed herb tea before that was a popular thing and he was going to try to teach me how to play chess. And I, I can remember like it was yesterday sitting in that backyard thinking, this is boring. I can't wait to go home, you know. And so consequently, he and I did not date very long. I mean, it was over before it started. You know, and that man had an S on his chest. I mean, he was a college graduate. He had a nice car. He had a nice family. You know, he probably turned out to be somebody wonderful. But, I mean, he was boring. And, and um, I didn't want to have any part of that. And so George and I dated for this year and, and um and unbeknownst to me, I went to the doctor before we got married, and I asked for birth control pills, but what I didn't get was the part that you had to take them. You know, I thought if you took the birth control pills before you were got married, it was kind of like sleeping before you got sleeping with him before you got married, and I thought, I'll just save these until afterwards. I don't know where my mind was. I'm so naive. My sponsor still says that today. She says, you're so naive. Anyhow, I waited and took the birth control pills after we got married, but what actually happened is I got pregnant on my honeymoon, and um, nine months and two days later, I had my first son, and I was ill-prepared to take care of a child. I had no idea. Now, my sister was a babysitter. She knew how to take care of children, but I was ill-prepared emotionally and, and physically and, and spiritually to take care of a baby. I remember when the baby was born, I looked, he had ten beautiful fingers and ten beautiful toes, and I thought to myself, you know, this is wonderful. God presented me with a perfect child, but I did not have the tools to take care. I had made promises. That when I got married and when I had children, I was not going to treat them or like my mom treated me. I wanted to be kind. I wanted to be nurturing. I wanted to be loving. I wanted to have understanding. I wanted to be able to read stories. I wanted to be able to rock my babies. I wanted to be able to get up in the middle of the night with them and, and be able to be a nurturing parent and not be aggressive and not be impatient. And I wish I could stand here and tell you that I accomplished all those things and I did not. I was irritable, restless, and discontent. And the disease of alcoholism was affecting me very badly. After we got married, my husband and I were married exactly two days. We honeymooned in Salt Lake City. He came home. On Monday morning, he put on his shirt and tie and his coat. 
went off to work and I didn't see him for the next 22 years. He was the kind of alcoholic who drank outside of the home in his office mainly. He was not only an alcoholic, he was a workaholic. And from almost the first day that we were married, I started the scenario of calling him on the phone every day, demanding that he come home for dinner and demanding where he was going to be and making all these demands. And of course, we started to fight. And then I'd call him back and then he'd hang up the phone and then I'd hang up the phone and he'd call me back and we played games. And both of us came from homes where we learned how to play the games. And we played the games and they got more abusive and more destructive. And, um, you know, and, and I just, he'd come home, I'd feed him that perfect supper, he'd fall asleep on the couch, I'd try to wake him up, he wouldn't wake up, he'd start to call me names. I didn't know he was in an alcoholic blackout, I believed the names. So coming from a home where I, you know, I believed that I was big and clumsy, now I have a husband who's calling me names before we would go to bed, and I started to believe the names. So, you know, you talk about, you know, the things, the destruction of the disease of alcoholism, it does not only happen to the alcoholic, it happens to the family. I was afraid to take my anger outside the home because I wanted you all to like me. So I beat up on my kids, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And by the time my one little son, the, the first of, I had another son two years later, by the time uh, the, the first one was in, in diapers and, and walking, the baby was sound asleep, I had cleaned the house to perfection, and that's another one of my character defects. The baby came coming down, he out, crawled out of his crib, came down the hall, pushing a Tonka truck across the newly vacuumed rug. I picked up a wooden spoon and started to beat a diapered baby. And I have the kind of anger that explodes inside of me like a volcano. And I become, I, I get to a place where I can't stop the anger. It just, it's out of control. And that happened to me that day with that spoon in my hand and I was beating on my baby. And I know today, I didn't believe in God back then. When I was a little child, my mother sent me off to church with my Auntie Annie, and I was raised a Catholic. And after that, after we moved out of the city and into the suburbs, I continued to get myself up and go to church. And I went to all the churches and all the denominations because they had youth programs, and it was a place where we could hang out and have fun. And I got ready to get married, and my husband agreed to get married in the, in the uh, Catholic church, and because he had been married before the Monsignor said that we could not be married behind the altar of the church. And at that moment, I didn't realize that I not only threw away the Catholic Church, I threw away the God of my understanding. So at the time I was beating on this child, I don't believe I had a God. But you see, I don't have to believe in God. He never lets go of me. And what I know today is that the God of my understanding, he couldn't even whisper that day because the rage was so severe, he screamed. And he says, Beverly, if you hit that baby again, you will kill him. And I heard that. And I put the baby down, and it was like I had an out-of-body experience. I saw me and the spoon and this little baby, and I thought to myself, what have you become? What has happened to you? You know, what kind of a monster are you? And I made a promise to myself that day that I would never, ever hit them again. And I'm here to tell you that I don't think I did, but if my sons were standing behind this podium, they may tell you a different story, but it, I don't think that I ever hit them again. But what I did do was probably even worse. You know, I started to pinch them under their arms and pull the back of their hair and, and grab them up by their shirt collar and yell at them in front of their friends. And I did all those kinds of things, and sometimes I think to myself, you know, the other may have been better. It would have been over with. But this was just an ongoing, never enough, never enough. And that's how life went on for us. My husband, in spite of his alcoholism, went up the corporate ladder. And in 1978, we moved to Texas. You know, and I didn't know that that was the beginning of the end, that the miracle was about to happen. But I knew that I was excited about coming to Texas. It was going to be fun, you know, cowboys, Indians, 10-gallon <laughs> hats, cowboy boots, 
pickup trucks. You know, we were, Dallas had just come on television, you know, and I had, I had some kind of a vision that that's how it was all going to be where I was, you know, and of course we got off there and it's interstates and traffic and, and, uh, shotguns in the back of Bubba trucks and, you know, it was a whole different culture as far as I was concerned. And, and we set off, uh, there, you know, with a better job and more money than we'd ever had. But what I didn't realize at that time was that alcoholism was a progressive disease and, and as in the case with my family, I had been separated from my husband while I tied up loose ends and when I got to Utah, alcoholism had progressed. And, um, and it progressed a lot. And the fighting was worse than ever. I brought two full-blown drug addict and alcoholic children with me. They were, um, 11 and, no, they were 13 and 15 years old when we got, when we got to Utah or to Texas. Stephen was about ready to have a pickup truck. We bought the truck. He bought a cowboy hat and the boots, and, and he, had his, he had his truck, and he was ready to go. Within a short period of time, he took everything possible off the truck and put on bigger, better, noisier, you know, and had parts and pieces all over the garage. And in the back of that truck was piles and piles of beer cans, which eventually got moved out of the back of the truck and into his bedroom where he had this huge pyramid of cans. And I'm here to tell you that periodically I went in there and I dusted those cans. And then I would be, then I would go out there and say, who's drinking those? Where did they come from? And he would tell me they were collector's items. He also had a selection of tequila bottoms, bottles, scotch bottles, um, all kinds of different shapes of beer bottles, empty and full on the shelf, and I kept asking questions. We asked really stupid questions, like, where have you been? Where are you going? When will you be home? Who were you with? Where did that come from? Where did that go? How did that happen? You know, all of these dumb questions, and we look at them and expect an answer. And you know what? They give us an answer. And you know what? We believe them. And then we get crazier and sicker and crazier and sicker and more disappointed and more feel more betrayed and, and, you know, less valued. And those are the things I did. One day I came home for lunch, and my younger son was out on the patio with a five-gallon fish aquarium. And he had the pump motor going in that. And somehow or other, they had fixed a little marijuana seed in there and fired it up. And the pump for the aquarium was pumping the marijuana smoke up through the aquarium. And he and a child much younger than him were sitting with their heads in the aquarium with a huge green plastic garbage sack over their head. And I opened up the, the door to the backyard and I said, what are you doing? And they look at me and they said, nothing, mom. <laughs> nothing, mom. You know, and, and I think to myself, well, what are they doing? Maybe it is nothing. You know, where did my stuff go? Where did my stuff go? I don't know where my stuff's going. They said, well, Steve took it. Then Steve would say Scott took it. Then Scott said we didn't have it. And then I got to feel crazy. I couldn't get to work on time. I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell the truth. They say, uh, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that sometimes they tell the truth. Well, sometimes I could tell the truth and most of the time I could not because I didn't realize I was covering it all up. In 1980, on Christmas Day, our family was suffering from alcoholism and I couldn't see it. Shortly after we got into the program and I began to understand how badly our family was affected by this disease, I pulled out the Christmas pictures and everybody in that picture, including myself, were dead. I believe that people who are like myself, I don't, I don't drink. I did a little, not much, nothing alcoholic, you know, a little wine here or there. But I believe that the family members of alcoholics die of the disease of alcoholism without taking a drink. And I look at the pictures of December 1980, and that entire family was dead. And I thought we were having a good time. 
You know, I thought it was a great Christmas. The kids were going off to ski with young life. Can you imagine? I mean, who would ever think it was alcoholism? What I didn't realize is that because of my two sons, I later found out that they were kicked out of that ski area, never to come back with that long, young life group. But I didn't know that then. And the possession, my, my possessions were being stolen, and uh, my husband's alcoholism is progressing, and God sent me an angel. And I believe today, with all my heart, that God comes to get us, because I didn't have enough sense to come in out of the rain. But I believe that my God loved me so much, even though I turned my back on him when George and I got married. I know that God loved me so much, he says, enough's enough here, and I'm going to send her somebody. And you know, I think we all get sent somebody who who helps us. And then what, what, our, what our obligation is then is to either follow the angel, or we can turn the back on our, our back on it. But for whatever reason, Margaret gave me some some clues about alcoholism because her son had almost died of the disease, and um, she had taken three days off work. And uh, when she got back to work, I asked her where she had been, and she said that her son had almost died. And uh, she says, "I'll tell you what happened if you promise not to tell anybody." And that's just how we are. Promise, don't tell anybody. So I promised on a Bible I wouldn't tell anybody and we went in the break room that day and Margaret told me about her son's alcoholism and I believe that denial saved my life until I got to you but that day when Margaret was telling me about her son God was God just opened the door just to crack the crack just a little bit so that her words could penetrate my heart and I could hear Margaret tell me what was going on in her family, and all of a sudden, I saw it. I remembered. I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about the pills in the washing machine and all of the missing items and all of the lies that we're telling and Stephen's wrecked truck and, and you know, not knowing where anybody is. And my husband and I are fighting all the time, and, and, I, and I realized that I hadn't been anywhere in two years. You know, I was coming right home from work and not going out. I had no social life. Um, it was just too hard to go away. I never knew what I was going to come home to, so I stayed home to watch him. You know, like, like it was going to do any good. <laughs> but I watched him, and at least we didn't have broken dishes. You know, it, they cost money to replace, and I had financial insecurity, so I watched him. So I didn't have a life. And uh, that day I came home, and I said to my husband, I said, you know, I think maybe Scott has a problem here. <laughs> so we made an appointment with the treatment center, and a few days later, all four of us piled into a little Mustang, and we'd drive up to Denton, and they evaluated us one at a time. And then as a family, and then they all, all these counselors came back in the room and they says, one of them was the spokeswoman, her name is Jean Coffin, and she was, it turned out to be one of my heroes. But she looked and she said, we are convinced that somebody in this family has alcoholism, but we're not sure who. <laughs> so when the real alcoholic surfaces, please feel free to be, bring him or her back. And I was really hurt. I'm thinking, wait a minute. You know, we brought Scott up here for evaluation, and they're saying, like, it could be any one of us, including me. <laughs> you know, and I've heard so many people say since then that they walked into the doors of Al-Anon, or they walked in the doors, and, and they couldn't tell which one was the alcoholic. Well, they couldn't tell which one of us was the alcoholic. And on February 9th of 1981, and that's the day I choose to call my Al-Anon birthday, we put Scott into a treatment center. George would not come home. Stephen drove me up there because I was too upset, but he had stolen some things from me, and we confronted him, and he said he couldn't get him back, and for the first time he admitted to me that he had sold my stuff, and he was using the money for drugs. And uh, we got up to Denton, and Stevie wouldn't come in, 
and we got Scott registered and in there, and I know today that Scott's reason for going into treatment had absolutely nothing to do with a desire to stay sober. He was in deep trouble. He had been robbing our neighborhood on Friday, and Monday he went into treatment because he figured it was a safe place to go and not get caught because his buddy had gotten caught on Sunday night. So Monday morning, on a rainy, rainy, cold Sunday morning, or Monday morning, we drove Scott up. And you know what? It doesn't matter how we get here. You know, when the time is right and we have the opportunity, what we need to do is to take advantage of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions and the people who are here with the experience who can show us the way. And I don't know what there was inside of me because I'm a defiant, angry woman who doesn't want your opinion about anything. And for whatever reason, my heart softened up just enough to make me willing to follow the directions. And I walked into the program there and at the treatment center, and she told me that I couldn't come back and see my son unless I went to Al-Anon. And I said to her, I don't think you understand. I'm a busy woman. I work. And she said, well, so do I. And if you want to come back here and see this child, she says, you absolutely have to attend Al-Anon meetings while he's here. We have a little card. It's called Just for Today. And it says we can do anything for 24 hours that would appall us if we had to do it for the rest of our life. And I made the decision at that moment that I would go to Al-Anon for 28 days. And when Scott got out of treatment, I was out of there. And, um, you know, she told me that day that my son could not come back to an old idea, that, that the family had to start some process of recovery, and that in Al-Anon I would learn that alcoholism had affected me as well as it had affected my son, and that I would learn to let go and detach with love, and that I would learn to uh, let go and let God. And, and I would learn about the grace of the God of my understanding today here. But I went to meetings defiant because, see, she told me I couldn't go back there to see my son. And I'm here to tell you that I did not love my children that day. I didn't care whether they lived or died. I was tired of the holes in my walls. I was tired of the defiance. I was tired of a husband who wouldn't come home and, and be a partner in our relationship. I was tired of everything. But on that very day, if you would have asked me how it was, I would have said it was fine. Thank you very much. My life is great. And uh, anyhow, she told me that I couldn't go back and see that boy, and I got defiant, and I thought, she is not going to tell me what I can and cannot do. So I decided I'd play her silly little game, and I would go to two Al-Anon meetings a week so I could come back to the treatment center and tell her I had fulfilled my commitment. I could come and see my son, and the only thing that I did was really destructive because I wanted to know if he changed his underwear, if he brushed his teeth. I went to the two meetings a week that they took the patients out of the treatment center, and one was the group in Louisville on Old Main Street, and the other one was the Alpha Group in Dallas. And I went to those two meetings simply to get another glimpse of my son and to make sure that they were taking good care of him in the treatment center. I was stopping him from fellowshipping before and after the meeting, asking all of my stupid controlling questions. What I didn't realize is that a lot of recovery happens before and after a meeting for an alcoholic, and I was spoiling that time for my son. I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on in Al-Anon. Um, but somehow or other, as I was sitting in the meetings and they did the readings, the openings and the closing and the steps and the tradition, and it was repetition, confirms, and strengthened, I was memorizing it all without even realizing. And one day, they missed a word before the 28 days was up, and I remembered what the word was. Now, I'm here to tell you I didn't jump out of the chair and say, that should have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what I realized is something was happening there. And I decided to stay. And, and it wasn't a conscious decision. I wish today I make a conscious decision to keep coming back because I know 
how much I have to lose if I walk away from Al-Anon today. Today I make a decision that I'm going to go to two, three, four, or five meetings a week. Today I choose to participate, but back then I didn't even know I was making a choice. I was just following my feet, doing what I was supposed to do, and before long, and I mean not, it wasn't long, probably before the end of the 28 days, I was going to at least 10 meetings of Al-Anon a week. And the joy and the, and the privilege that I had was because the treatment center took these people into, into the group in Dallas called the Alpha Group, I was ex exposed to the absolute giants of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. I think back now, and they were just wet behind the ears. They had seven and eight years, but they were my heroes. Um, that, you know, there was Sally and Albert and Billy and Jerry and Barbara and Charlie and, and Shep and Nancy and so many of the, of the people that were sitting in those rooms. Um, you know, they helped me. They told us, they, they ripped off bottoms of these little things that you get from retreat weekends, and they'd say, send in $65 and go to a retreat. We're all going to sleep in bunk beds. <laughs> you know, and I think, not me. Well, next thing I'd see, I want to go, but I don't want to send $65 because we don't have that much money. And, and But in order to go, I've got to send the $65 per person in order to go, and there's four of us. And um, sleep in a bunk bed with a bunch of people, oh my God. But I wanted so desperately to be a part of you. And, it, and, and again, I, I wish I could tell you that it was because I was learning from you and I wanted what you had. The only thing that I wanted was to be a part of. George and I had been cut off from any kind of social life for many years before we walked into the doors of these two programs. And what I loved was when you said, hey, we're all going out for ice cream and coffee afterwards. Do you want to come with us? I would have paid a million dollars to have a chair at that table just to be a part of, of the people that were sitting there, just to listen to the silliness and the, and the fun and the way that they laughed about alcoholism. And I'm covering it all up, and they're laughing about it. And it was such a, it was such a healing, it was, it was so healing for me to be sitting with these people and, and being a part of all that. So I continued to go to meetings. We continued, and we went on, and we sent in our money, and we went to our first retreat. And not knowing what a dormitory was like, I set an alarm clock for 5 o'clock because I didn't want to miss breakfast. And, I mean, I thought I was going to be killed. Some old-timer hopped out of her bunk, and she says, Don't you ever do that again! <laughs> and she hurt my feelings, you know. And then we had a woman named Beverly who had a top bunk in a corner, and she kind of ruled that whole roost and had rules. And I heard her yell from the corner about the alarm clock, and, and I thought, That's it. I'm never coming back here. They've embarrassed me in front of all my friends. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what I know today is that new newcomer set alarm clocks, you know, and we just have to tell them not to, and, and that's the way that it is. We lead by example here. I can stand up here and talk to you and talk and talk because I know all the words. I know all the words of recovery, but what is the most important for me and for you is to lead by the way that I walk, and what I realized after I'd been in this program a number of years is that my children were watching me. But before I start to tell you about that, I want to go back to the treatment center. Here I am in this in this treatment center. They have a Friday night open meeting. George and I went to the family meeting on Thursday. He reads about himself in the big book, in the Jaywalker. We get in the car. We're driving home. He says to me, I'm an alcoholic. I read about myself in the chapter, in the story about the Jaywalker. And he said, tomorrow night at the open meeting, I'm going to get a desire chip. 
And I looked at him and I said, you have got to be kidding. What was going through my mind is, oh, my God, I can't believe he's going to do this. I've got the youngest child in treatment. You know, they're already criticizing me. They're probably wondering what kind of a weird mother I am that I can have an alcoholic child at the age 15 and a half. And all of these older people were in there for alcoholism. And I've got this kid. And my mind's just going like crazy. And now this man's going to stand up in front of all these people on a Friday night. And he's going to have the audacity to say to them that I am George and I'm an alcoholic. And I just can't even believe that he's going to do that. So as we're walking in, I think I said to him, please don't do that. Please don't do that. You know. And so we're sitting on you know, a couple of rows back. You know, I was taught early to sit on the front row so I wouldn't miss anything. They said, you, haven't, you, you can't concentrate, so you need to sit there. And besides that, it'll keep you from walking out of the room. So I, they always made me sit in the front row. And I'm sitting there, and they says, they held up this little tin chip. And they, you know, it's like they're holding diamonds and rubies. And they they do this first, right? You've all seen them. And they go, is there anybody in the room who would like 24 hours of sobriety? And my husband popped out of that chair like he was sprung out of a jack-in-the-box and hopped up. I mean, that's the way I see it. He hopped up on there, and he grabbed that chip, and he said he was George, and he was an alcoholic. And, and I sat there, and I was slumped in my chair, and I thought to myself, this is the most embarrassing moment of my life. So that was the kind of person I was when I walked into Al-Anon. And uh, my husband is 19 years sober on that desire chip, and I live in a home that's sober today. And I have a lot to be grateful for, but it took me a long time to become grateful. After we were in the program for two years, we, I was still um, demanding the Saturday night fights, or, or the Saturday morning fights, actually. I just didn't know how to let go of the anger. I was so filled with anger and, and resentments and, and so used to the fighting and the criticism and, and the angry words back and forth that I didn't know how to have a nurturing, sweet relationship. And one day after um, we were in the program that long, I was going into Dallas to do some shopping, and he threw a tape in the front seat, and he says, Beverly, I can't fight with you anymore. And he says, maybe if you listen to this lady, she'll help you. And it was a tape of Nell from Oklahoma. And I thought to myself, hell will freeze over before I put that tape in the, in the, I mean, and it sat there and it was like Nell was sitting there calling out of that tape, you know, and, and I got all the way to Dallas and I resisted it. And I just kept looking at it, you know, from time to time out of the corner of my ear. I, and I thought to myself, maybe it'll just fall out of the car or something will happen to it. But it just laid there and and I got coming home, and I thought, well, what could it hurt? You know, what could it hurt? So I put the tape of Nell in. Now, I didn't want him to know I had listened to Nell, so I wasn't finished listening by the time I got home. And it was wonderful. She was talking about the blessings that she learned from a son that was retarded. And I sat there alongside of a curb so that he wouldn't know, and I cried, and I listened to Nell. And those are the kinds of things that started to change my life is being just willing, you know, just a little bit of willingness. I am, I am so aggressive, you know, and so unwilling. But, but this program has taught me willingness. And um, I didn't know how to love. I told you that my son came in here. Well, i got to tell you one more story about sobriety. On the, 20, on the 30th day of March uh, of 1981, my son came in drunk, and I noticed he was drunk. And I said, oh, my God, Steve's drunk, and Scott goes, he's worse than me. And so we go to a meeting on a Sunday morning, and... Um, and they said that I could ask him to leave. And I thought if I gave birth to a child and, uh, I, you know, I was responsible for him for the rest of my life no matter what, and that, you know, he was punching holes in my walls too and stealing from me and not minding. And they said you can, you can either ask him to leave because he doesn't deserve to live in a sober home or um, you can ask him to join you in the program of recovery. 
So that night when we went home, see, I'd learned by that time that I could trust you. You were the first people I had ever encountered in my entire life that I could trust. And so I went home that day, and I thought if you could do it, I could do it. And I told my son if he didn't want to join us in recovery, he had to leave our home. And he was shocked. (laughs) He was shocked. And then, you know, fear comes out in anger for an alcoholic um, that's... For an alcoholic that's active, that's their only response to life and their only means of communication, and so he got angry. And I am afraid of angry people, and I don't want to lose my son. I'm willing to keep peace at any price, but I was also willing to follow your directions, and I sent Steve out that night. Angry as he could be at me, but a few minutes later, he called me from the store. He stocked groceries at night, and he says, I'll go to a meeting. And it was mentioned today about the prejudices. The the AA speaker this morning was just wonderful, and he talked about prejudices. And I was raised in a family that was filled with prejudice against blacks and Chinese and Italians. I mean, anybody that was not Czechoslovakian, we had a name for them. (laughs) And and I hung on to those things because, you know, I thought if, you know, that's what I was taught. So the first night we walk into AA, a black man took my son aside and introduced himself. He, however, did not want to teach him about sobriety because he didn't want to mess with kids anymore. But Millie, who has a little more power over him than than I did, um, said that he was going to talk to my son. And I went into the door. I stood in the door that night and watched my son, my older son, stand up at 17 and a half years old and get a desire chip. And after that meeting, I saw this black man sitting with him with a big book. And uh, after the meeting, he came up and he hugged me, and I could not embrace that man because of the color of his skin. And um, that was in March, and by November, he sat at my table for a Thanksgiving meal. And my prejudice, my prejudices against everybody, you know, any color, any any religious sect was gone. And I don't know how that happened, but what I did realize is that Bobby was saving our lives, and I had to respect that. And he sat at our table, and I had a spread out. I mean, I had every vegetable you could possibly cook, you know, the turkey, dressing, every kind of drink you could possibly drink besides alcoholic. And he stood there, and he says, where's the bread? (laughs) (laughs) And from that day until this, every time I see Bobby, I always the first thing I say to him is, where's the bread? (laughs) And we laugh, and we laugh about that. But, you know, I guess the God of my understanding knew if he didn't take that one thing and solve that problem at the very beginning, it was going to stop me from um, following the sunlight of the Spirit. And Bobby sent me to my first sponsor. He says to me, Beverly, everything I asked these boys to do, he said, you counteract it. And he said, you need to get a life and a sponsor. So he gave me a telephone number of a lady that he thought was suiting for me. And I, I followed, I was willing to follow directions. And I called her up and I said, Bobby told me to call you and ask you to be my sponsor. And she says, I know. He told me you were going to call. And I'm glad you did. And um, anyhow, she gave me my initial, you know, my initial directions in this program, and she was so kind. And if nothing else, all that Sally was was love. She just was love. She loved me and loved me and loved me. I'd call her up with, he did this and he did that and he did this, and she'd say, and I'm crying, and she'd say, first of all, honey, blow your nose. So I'd (laughs) blow my nose, and then we'd talk. And so for a long time, I thought step one was blow your nose. (laughs) And then we talk about powerlessness, and, and and had I turned that over to God yet? And you know, and I'm thinking, I had not resolved my relationship with God and this Catholic Church, and so I wasn't willing to turn it over to God. And you guys kept talking about miracles, and I'm thinking to myself, if I don't find one silly miracle in this program, I'm not going to get to stay. I became fearful 
that if I didn't find the 12 steps and be able to work them in my life for myself, no matter what they were doing, that I knew I couldn't stay. And so that in itself was the motivation for me to continue to work in the program. And uh, she said to me, you've got to turn that over to God. And I says, I don't believe in God. And sometime after that, I did an inventory and, and, uh, and I still really didn't have a deep or profound understanding of a personal God, but I had willingness. And I, and I kept, I kept saying to people, I don't know where these miracles come from for you. I guess God doesn't like me as well as he likes you. I had that feeling, you know, that I wasn't enough and he didn't, he didn't care for me. And, and so I walked around like that. I thought, you know, God doesn't love me. He gives everybody a miracle, but he never gives me one. And then one day I lost a check. And after a while, I found the check. It was signed. It was made out to a grocery store, and it was signed, and my son was supposed to buy groceries with it, and he didn't, and he gave me the check back. And I'm a perfectionist. I don't want to write void in my checkbook register. And um, so I thought, well, I'll just go back to the store today, and I'll use the check. And before I got there, I lost it, which in itself is incredible because I don't lose anything. Uh, I have a friend named Babs in Dallas, and one day I was doing a ste the steps at their group, and I says, I have never so much as lost a sock. And she came up to me, and she said, you are sicker than most. <laughs> she says, I wouldn't be proud of that if I was you. <laughs> so, anyhow, I don't want to write void in the checkbooks, and I lost this check before I got to the Tom Thumb. And, and I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I mean, somebody could have bought a million dollars worth of groceries and it would have come out of my account. And I worked for the bank that the check was drawn on. And when I left, you know, the bank was closed, so I couldn't even call and put a stop payment on it. And I went home, and what I realized was my very first surrender was I had this little thought, and it says, well, Beverly, there's nothing you can do about the check, so why don't you just peel the potatoes? And today, you know, a surrender is as simple as being willing to peel the potatoes. And as soon as I took out the potatoes and the peeler, the phone rang, and it was Gracie, the lady at my bank who files the checks, and it was back before everything was electronic. They literally sat at long drawers every day with a card, and they matched signatures, and they filed the checks. And Gracie called me, and she says, Beverly, I cannot believe we have somebody as stupid as you working for our bank. She says, and I says, what's the matter? And she said, did you lose something? And I said, yes. And she said, well, I found it. And I said, my check? And she said yes, and when we talked about it, it was before they had the stamp, the payee on the back. It was just a blank white piece of paper. She was standing in the checkout line at Walmart, and she saw this piece of paper, and because all she did for a living was file checks, she saw this piece of paper on the floor, and she decided to pick it up. And, and so somebody in my very own bank found my check. And I stood there for a minute, and I thought to myself, I think that's a miracle. <laughs> and it was like, yes, I think that's a miracle. And then I started to cry. Have you ever cried when you realized it's a miracle? I mean, you just, all of a sudden, when you realize that this compassionate, loving God has your best interest in mind, I just cry. I still cry today. You know, I cry when I find a penny. I cry. Uh, yesterday, we were sitting outside, and there was a hummingbird feeding in a flower late in the evening. It was so cold out there. I didn't want to be out there, but this hummingbird was out there. And I could feel the tears coming up, you know, because I realized that that's one of the evidences of God that I feel in my heart today. My heart is so open today that I cry at everything, <laughs> you know, and that's not who I was when I got here. Most of the anger is gone today, and, um, you know, my husband and I have a few rounds, and, you know, we have a few, we bicker a little, we work together, and, and sometimes that gets to be really hard. But, but the anger, that profound, everlasting, continuing, horrible, resentful anger is gone. Much of it has to do with a lot of inventory work, a million or a bazillion meetings. I don't know how many. I have a sponsor that I call every day. 
She's in the program well over 30 years, probably 35, 38 years old. She lost her husband a couple of years ago. And even before he died, I had gotten in the habit of calling her every day. And I said, you know, I really shouldn't bother you like this every day. But it wasn't about Al-Anon all the time. It was about a friendship. But my sponsor has the ability to turn that hat around. And every once in a while, when I'm not looking, she puts that, that Al-Anon hat on and just gives me a piece of the program I wasn't expecting. And, and um, tells me sometimes about my ego and about my unwillingness to let go and let God. And we've been talking about that for a long time now because I've got something going on in my life now that I'm unwilling to let go of. And it's been causing me a lot of pain. And, um, and you know, I, I didn't realize... I mean, this is why I keep coming back, because the messages keep coming, because I forget what I know. And at 4 o'clock this morning, it's when God has his opportune moment to have my undivided attention. We had a little talk, and, and I presented the problem to God one more time. And I says, what, why can't I let this go? And what I understood this morning is because I was afraid of the consequences of letting go. And then I, and then I heard myself ask myself, so what would be the deepest fear? And the deepest fear would mean that perhaps a relationship that I cherish dearly would not be the same. And then I had to think about who I would be if this relationship was not the same and I could, I would still be me. I would be sad, but I wouldn't die. I have gotten through things that are far worse. And, and the big book and also the, the, the last part of the serenity prayer tell me that the big book says pain is the touchstone to all spiritual growth. And the last part of the serenity prayer says that pain is the pathway, to, that hardship is the pathway to peace. And so I know that when I am faced with these kinds of moments and I have decisions to make, that the pain in it will be my pathway to a more peaceful existence because right now I'm not at peace. I have this area in my life that's out of order. It's been out of order for a long time. And I called my sponsor. I can't get her. I had to go out and sit by the pool and call her just before I came out here. And I, I said to her, I think I'm finally ready to let this go. And I'm ready. I'm willing and ready to suffer the consequences. And I'm willing to give God the fear that I have and allow him to do his will in my life with this. And so when I go home, I have to take care of business. But life went on, and, and my children are sober. My young one did not stay sober. He was in and out, and he gave me many opportunities for further growth in this program. It was when I decided, it was when I was able to finally come to a decision that there was absolutely nothing I could do about the alcoholic, that my recovery was my responsibility. And as a recovering woman, I could give back to my family gifts which are not of the material nature that I could not give them otherwise. And um, time went on, and Scott went in and out. He got married, had a fairly decent job for a drug addict kind of a kid who was in big trouble and progressing, and ended up in Orlando, Florida, in 1986, married, and um, about a year after they were there, they decided to have a child. And of course, my thought is, oh my God, no, they can't have a baby. This is progressed alcoholism. God, can't you see it? You know, <laughs> and um, God couldn't see it from the eyes that I have. I see everything from the eyes of fear a lot of times, and God couldn't see it that way. And they ended up, they conceived a child, and in May of 19, uh, 1988. My granddaughter, Sarah, was born, and six months after her birth, my son got sick, and he went into the hospital for 10 days, and we payback time. You know, I had let go and let God. I was sending Pampers to, to Florida because I knew if I sent money, they would spend it. So I was shipping Pampers, shipping baby food, shipping baby clothes, because that I could do, and it wasn't enabling. It was, it was 
caring for a child and knowing that it was going, you know, that the need was being met because there was no money in this family. And so the payback was that I was not to know anything about my son's well-being in this hospital. And when he came home, he called my husband and I, and he says, Mom, I'm in full-blown AIDS, and I'm going to die. And they, he was 24 years old, and they told him he would be gone by the time he was 25. At that very time, I was taking care of my father, who was in terminal cancer, and it was really a privilege. My sister and I, my relationship with her had grown back together again, and she and I had joint custody of my absolutely fabulous father. And um, we had a lot of fun with him, and the only thing we knew to do, because she and her husband were going to AA meetings, we just drugged my dad to AA meetings. <laughs> he just, you know, he got to know the fellowship, and he helped my husband do what he does for a living, and, and he was enjoying the people, and he was afraid of germs, and he wasn't going to eat your food, and all of a sudden we realized dad was first in line. And in 1990, in February of 1990, my father died, and my sister and I have a relationship today that was founded on love and the gratitude that we had for the year and a half that we had my father with us. All my amends had been made, and my amends to my father were not because I had done anything bad. We just didn't have a relationship. And after I got in this program, I made an effort to spend a lot of really quality time with my dad. And um, so when he got sick, he came to stay with us, and and uh, we had to go back and sell his home and get rid of his possessions, and he knew he was dying. But he was such a good sport about it. He taught me a lot. And I always thought that he loved my sister better because she was five foot two, eyes of blue, and it always seemed like they gave her the most, the most money, the most attention. She got the keys to the car. And I always felt that I was big and clumsy and that my father didn't like me at all. But as he was dying and we were going through that process, what he told me one day is he says, I respect you. And I don't think there's any better gift that anybody can give you than to tell you they respect you. And my dad called me Pigeon when I was a little kid, and every once in a while we'd go in and take care of him, and I'd tend to his needs, and he'd say, Thanks, Pigeon. And, you know, I knew that my relationship with him was not, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, that my relationship with him was my relationship with him, and his relationship with his other daughter was his relationship with his other daughter. And one day God took the scales from my eyes, and I realized that I didn't want my sister's relationship with my dad, that I liked what I had. And I knew then, too, in keeping my dad, that he was absolutely alcoholic, because one day we're looking at a picture with this stuff, you know, big glass. All the sweat's leaking down, the little cherries and umbrellas, and I, it was a hot day, and we had just come back from chemotherapy or radiation, and I says, oh, my God, Daddy, doesn't that look wonderful? And he said, you know, it's the funniest thing. Ever since I've been on morphine, I just haven't wanted to drink. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I came from an alcoholic home. Huh? <laughs> there was no doubt in my mind. <laughs> And in, in, after my dad died, my son came back to Texas with a little bit of inheritance money, and they decided my son wanted to come back and, and live near us until he died. And we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of tears. There was a lot of pain. I saw a lot of courage. And I, and I got to have a relationship with my little granddaughter, which I absolutely love. I mean, she's just absolutely wonderful. She's 12 now, and she plays a cello in the school orchestra, and the other day was Grandparents' Day, and all of a sudden they're playing a little Dixieland number, and she puts her cello and her bow down, and she stood up in the middle of it all, and she does a little something or other, sat back down, and when the tune was over, the, the, the band, the instructor says, this song was such and such, it was written by so and so, and that was Sarah Ann Burnett, I guess our little go-go girl. <laughs> But we're, we're very involved in her life and in, in the life of my daughter-in-law today. Um, my son died in 1993, and uh, my little granddaughter stood on a chair, 
at the funeral, at the memorial service, which was filled by people from Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous who did not even know my son. But the room was full because we love each other, and that's what we do to support each other. And she stood there, and she thanked everybody for coming to her daddy's party. And after that, you know, my husband and I take her to a convention in Colorado. We've been taking her up there for nine years, and she has a family of 700-plus. She goes to Alan. She's been to preteen, pre-taught. Now she's going to be a Alateen next year. And and uh, what she knows for sure is that Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous is comprised of love. And she has a 50-50 chance of becoming an alcoholic, and she has definitely got a 50-50 chance of being a, a person who will someday need this fellowship. And what I know is that she has no fear because she knows you in, a, in an area where in, she's been just surrounded by your love for, for all these years. And she loves the story. She sits in speaker meetings. We've taken her to singles in sobriety. She loves to sit right on the front row. And, and a couple of years ago when she was there, she took a piece of chalk and wrote on the sidewalk under the basketball court and a great big heart. She wrote in the middle of the heart. She says, AA goes to the soul and kills the demons within. So if my granddaughter ever turns up with the disease of alcoholism, she's going to know where to come. My son Steve got married, has two little grandchildren, and the very first one when they were trying to teach her how to say my name, grandmother, she decided that I was happy. And now the second little one is calls me happy, and, and my son's wife calls me happy, but my son hasn't got there yet. <laughs> one resentment I do have today is that he has up and moved that entire family from Houston to, to Seattle. And I said to God, I said, you have opened my heart to love these children the way I always wanted to be able to love my own, and now you just up and move them. And so you better make it possible for me to go see them, because I had made a decision that in order to love these children and to be able to be the kind of woman that I had grown to be as a member of Al-Anon and by practicing the steps and the principles in my life, that I had to have these children in my life. And so far, they've lived in Seattle since August, and I've been there twice, and it's been free. <laughs> now I'm trying to manipulate and maneuver one more trip before Christmas, and we're working on it. <laughs> but I have a nice life today. And in the, in the first step and in the third step, when it talks about our lives, it does not mean for a person who's in the program of Al-Anon, them. Today I know that when they talk about lives, it means me. And what I'm here to tell you today is that them is not okay. A lot of them has a lot of things that I would like to see different. But inside of me, it's okay. I have a good life. I have a happy life. I get to do a lot of things, a lot of service. Um, I love the people that I sponsor. I love my sponsor. And um, and I just couldn't ask her anymore. When I walked in here and, and belligerent, decided to stay for 28 days, I would have cut myself out of the biggest miracle that God ever had for me if I would have turned my back on this program. Because I am different today. I am totally, totally different today. And I only can thank the God of my understanding and you. And thank you for being here for me today. Thank you for your kindness and your love.